This is Pragmatic, a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode of Pragmatic is sponsored by Typeform. Typeform makes it easy to build and share beautifully designed online forms, combining human creativity with the power of modern cross-device web technology to create new ways of asking questions online. They're uniquely designed to act like actual human conversation, one question at a time, without what's coming up next distracting you, and the result is awesome. For a limited time, Typeform is offering a three-month free trial of their new Typeform Pro service. We'll talk a little more about that later on in the show. I'm your host, Ben Alexander, and my co-host is John Chigi. How you doing, John? I'm doing very well, Ben. How you doing? Doing well. Fantastic. Um, so I've been trialing for the last couple of weeks some cryptic clues about the topics uh, on that are going to be on this the show um, in a few days' time, which is now. And I realized that I sort of prefaced them as being a riddle. The the truth is that I'm a little I, I have in my past sort of been somewhat of a crossword addict and uh uh, now in recovery. And I also played with cryptic uh, cl- crosswords, which I've since sort of learned is less of a, an international thing than I thought it, would, it was. As a result, uh, it's quite possible that even though I reframe them as cryptic clues, that perhaps the way I'm framing them uh, is not such an international sort of flavor that I would have expected, what, I, what I, was, I was hoping. But that's okay. I mean, you live and learn these things, so that's fine. Uh, in in the end, uh, I'm going to ask anyone in the chat room right now. We have some people in the chat room. Uh, did any of you actually guess what uh, the topic for today is? And uh, I'll give you a minute to respond because it's about a little bit of a delay there. So uh, while I while while I'm waiting to hear a response, I was going to say, John, I I don't know if, who else you've talked to other people about it too. And I, I did read through that article, and it's I think in, over here they're often referred to as British style crosswords. And okay. I mean, I wasn't familiar with them beyond a couple of the the styles which I kind of seen that were similar that showed up in the Akron Beacon Journal, but I have no idea if they're more popular elsewhere. But anyways, I think they are kind of cool. They're just wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, I guess the the problem I've got is that I don't want to put out um, you know riddles or clues that are you know such a small subset of the audience is going to listen and say what the heck. I have no idea what the hell he's on about. He's sniffed some kind of glue this morning, whatever. Yeah, there, there has to be some kind of level of, you know, oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting. I've seen, I know what he's getting at. And oh, oh yeah, I've figured it out kind of thing. Uh, just a little bit more, a little bit more fun. But th- that's okay. It's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll play with it and see. But uh, uh, in any case, uh, one suggestion, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, no, I'm afraid that's not it. And... Um, the other one, which was a rather good one, actually, uh, was regarding the degrees Celsius versus Fahrenheit. And whilst I'd, I'd love to talk about that and which is the one true scale, I'm not going to touch that one with a 10-foot barge pole. Rankin. We'll leave that alone. Uh, hey? Rankin. Sorry? Rankin? Uh, Kelvin? No? I don't know. Rankin's the really crazy one. Oh, I had never even heard of it. That's Rankin's terrible. Scale. Okay. So... What's that like the boiling point of your skin or something? It's um <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> yeah, actually I, I didn't even know it existed until I found it as a one of the optional scales in um in dark skies. Dark okay. Sky. Yeah. And it was actually referred to so if you if you wanted your temperatures in Kelvin, you were weird. If you wanted it in Ranking, you were very weird. 
Okay. I was there. Fantastic. Well, there you go. That's my new little I had no idea about jokes. that. <sighs> Entropy. Uh, just The jokes just keep getting more and more out of control. A temperature of negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit is exactly equal to zero degrees Rankin. But the Rankin degree is defined as equal to one degree Fahrenheit rather than one degree Celsius used by the Kelvin scale. So. That's kind of like a Kelvin scale, but with Fahrenheit or something. Right. Cool. Those are Wikipedia. Okay. So, uh, well, Wikipedia is the font of all email knowledge, job. So, uh, it's got to be. <laughs> I know I link to Wikipedia quite a bit, but anyway, okay. So, focus today. We're going to be talking about safety, safety, safety everywhere, and we'll get into that in just a minute because I've realised that I haven't said my thank yous, and I wanted to make sure that I had a few a few specifics to thank today. So. Uh, again, the usual thank yous to everyone on Twitter and app.net for all the great feedback. I, I really do appreciate it. And, uh, it's, uh, it always brightens my day when some people come back and say that they like the show and I just, you know, spurs me to want to keep, keep going. So thank you very much for that. It really is appreciated. Uh, also, uh, a few more emails this week. Again, uh, thank you. And I am, I've been really behind the eight ball this week trying to get my statomic version of tech distortion done. And it is going up hell or high water tomorrow. So uh, tomorrow evening. So by the time this this uh, podcast is released uh, out on iTunes and so on, then hopefully it'll be up. And then uh, yeah, feel free to tell me everything that's wrong with it. Okay. Um, also, I want to say a special thanks to Russell F. Uh, I only know that that's who he is. Uh, back in early January, he wrote a piece about power consumption uh, of some of his computer equipment, sort of similar to how I discussed. Uh, a method of, uh, of of doing that um, with an, an adapter that I'd purchased for cheap on off eBay. And uh, anyway, uh, he reported his Mac Mini power consumption is about 12 watts idle, sort of the figure that I'd heard, but I'm you know, still really keen to see what uh, happens with Haswell. So we'll wait and see what happens uh, with Apple later this year uh, for that. So thank you very much, Russell. Appreciate that. And um, and also, sorry, I missed that. It was uh, The article was about four weeks ago. So yeah, Mr. Mr. Slow, I missed that one. So unbelievably, this week, a record, we've had six iTunes reviews in seven days, and each of them is from a different country. So it's sort of blowing my mind. Just to quickly run through them, thanks to, and again, apologies if I mispronounce your name. I'm trying. Uh, feel free to correct me, and I will correct myself later on if that's the case. So thanks to Kana Kambaruglu from Turkey, Viper Mark from Australia, and I'd like to add, I did spend seven months living in New South Wales, so there. Uh, Dark JC from Canada, uh, Egla H from Austria, uh from Brazil, and Michel Ducantel from France. So thank you all of you for those wonderful um, reviews on iTunes. I I really am blown away by uh, by the nice words. So thank you so much. And without further ado, I think we should get stuck into the actual topic. So. Safety, safety everywhere. So what, so what does safety mean to you, Ben? Um, safety hats, hard hats. <laughs> safety training wheels. Um, training, training wheels? Yeah, Seatbelts. Okay. Yeah, good one. Seatbelts, yes. It's, it's a very broad topic, and I want to try and narrow it down to areas that particularly bug me. I'm in a position where I kind of, uh, I'm in a position where I go to construction sites semi-regularly and I go to uh, in industrial locations semi-regularly. 
and I'm exposed to this safety stuff all the time. But there's a lot of things that that we can take away from that and take to our personal lives. So I don't want to focus too much on the industrial side. I want to talk to people more about the things that they can do and to recognize uh, risks where they see them and to try and eliminate those risks or at least reduce them. So the first and most obvious place to start is, uh, well, in the in the industry, the lingo is PPE, which stands for personal protective equipment. And PPE is the mon- most mundane of things. So you'll have uh, clothing, uh, you'll have, uh, you know, like uh, gloves, uh, protective glasses, uh, face shields or face masks, uh, like um, like dust for, for your nose and your mouth, you know, and of course, as you said, uh, hard hats, much less common uh, in your own private uh, household, I suppose. But in any case, I want to start talking about um, clothing. Now, this may sound a little bit strange, but um, stick with me. The thing with clothing is that ever since they came up with uh, rayon and nylon and all these, you know, wonderful wonder fabrics, they're all artificial. The problem with them is that when they get hot, if they catch on fire or they get hot enough, they literally melt. And when they do melt, they actually melt and bond to your skin. They literally melt into your into your body. It's really actually quite horrible. So when you're working in an environment where it's possible that you could, you know, for example, if there's if there's if you're working at a, a petrol station, a service station, gas station, any of those, same thing, then you know you would be wearing something that is uh, that is flame retardant of some kind. And the simplest way of doing a flame retardant, the, the most traditional way, is a more natural fiber. So cotton is generally being preferred. So a lot of people will be wearing long sleeve shirts, long pants, and they'll be made out of cotton predominantly. In more recent times, they tend to go with a polycotton uh, blend, but it's still the majority of it is still cotton. Uh, there, there is, of course, um, always a really ridiculously expensive, super flame retardant one. And the one that's in fashion at the moment or the most popular one at the moment is something called Nomex. It's actually made by DuPont, and I'd love to tell you everything that was in it, but it is a little bit proprietary, and it's also expensive. That's but like it's a race car driver suit, right? That sort of thing, yes. Yeah. However, however, those sorts of suits now are starting to become prevalent in the oil and gas industry. So I'm sort of, yeah, ah, oh dear. How, how should I put this? Because um, I'm currently working in the oil and gas space, there's a lot of, uh, I'm getting a lot of that, the, the safety messages like fire, fire retardant, clothing and everything but in the water and wastewater space and and uh yeah it's less prevalent you'll still get polycottons and it's still perfectly acceptable and perfectly fine the one thing you don't want to do is put on all cotton because all cotton actually will sustain its own flame which is not kind of not really what you're going for so it's uh it's always good to go for that and for the average person in the house you know you're looking at you know jeans are perfect you know so uh jeans have actually really good ppe for around the house uh, but you know, if you're going to wear them to protect you against those sorts of things, probably not your good pair of jeans. Um, question from the chat room: uh, What about wool? That's actually a good one. Wool's quite a uh, is quite resistant, but the problem with wool is that it's also uh, there's issues with static electricity, and uh, which can also you know be be a problem. And wool 
because uh, you all you know the experiment with the um, the wool and the um, uh, perspex rod. Things like you know rub against each other mm-hmm. and then you do the whole electrostatic thing. Yeah, but uh, in any case, wool wool still is quite a good insulator and it doesn't it doesn't burn uh, rather like the way cotton generally doesn't burn. But uh, still, it's a good point. But uh, it's not as popular. It may just also be that it's more expensive than uh, than poly cotton. That could be the other reason. So, good question from uh, Clinton in the chat room. Thanks, mate. So, um, one of the things that you come across in the industry is you'll come across the horror stories, and horror stories help you to kind of focus and realize that this stuff is actually serious. And you may think to yourself, well, you know, how is this? How does this apply to me? You know, I mean, if if I if you go and get a jerry cans worth of fuel and you're pouring that into your mower, or if you've got a whippersnapper, line trimmer, whatever you want to call it, you know, honestly, I, I would be wearing some degree of PPE in case something goes wrong. You don't want if that catches fire, you don't want that blowing up in your face. If you're only wearing short sleeves and you know and and shorts, then yeah, that's going to burn. You're going to burn, and it's going to it's going to cause a lot of damage. And there's uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of uh, Charlie Moorcraft, and uh, he's somewhat famous for uh, less than desirable reasons insofar that he was severely injured at work. There's a link in the show notes. I strongly recommend that you read his story. And what he does is he's now a motivational speaker. He was one of the guys that worked in um, the petroleum industry, and he was all very, you know, whatever about safety, like personal protective equipment. And since we're talking about clothing, that's what what I'm talking about at the moment. So his issue was that he, the company supplied him PPE. He had to wear it and it was all long sleeve shirts and everything. And of course, it's hot there in the middle of summer, like it is wherever you are in summer on the world, in the world, pretty much. Uh, although I don't know how hot it gets in the North Pole in summer. But anyway, point is that he decided to be cool and he got sick of rolling his sleeves up which he shouldn't have done, but he did it anyway. He actually cut the sleeves off. So these were uh, company-provided clothing that he modified because, you know, he was sick of being hot and he didn't think that the whole safety thing was worth, you know, mentioning, oh, it's not going to happen to me kind of attitude. Uh, Long story short, uh, there was an accident and he got severe burns uh, to many parts of his body. Oddly enough, the parts of his body that didn't get burnt were the parts that were covered by the clothing. So the scars on his arms are absolutely unbelievable and he was out of action for years in recovery and like I think he had something like 50 operations. Yeah, read the article for the details, but it's terrible. Certainly it's true that in a home environment you're not exposed to that kind of situation uh, very regularly, whereas he was. So obviously the frequency of exposure is going to push up the probability that you're going to have an event. Uh, however, bottom line, uh, it's something that people do not consider and they really should. So uh, protective glasses. So the point of protective glasses is not glasses. I've heard that so many times. It's irritating. And normal glasses, especially trendy glasses, like you know the really narrow, thin ones or uh, yeah, just normal spectacles, right, corrective lenses, they're not safety glasses. And and no matter how many times someone says, oh, but I'm wearing glasses, it's okay. A safety glasses wrap around the side of your eyes and they stop debris from getting into your eyeballs. That's the point of them. So, you know, they're hot, especially in summer. They're annoying. But you know what? Uh, they'll stop you from losing your eyesight. And last time I checked, you get two eyes. And if they, uh, if they get damaged, then you're out of luck. So... 
yeah, we're not quite at Geordie LaForge yet with a uh, with a visor. So you know, uh, and anything you're doing, anything at all uh, that has debris, and that includes things like uh, when I say whippersnapper and line trimmer, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, cool. Weed this whacker, just wasn't. Yeah. yeah, weed whacker. Thank you. For, uh, great. I just want to make sure I'm using the right lingo for different parts of the world and. Th- those things they kick up a lot of debris, you know, little little bits of dirt, little bits of grass, uh, you know, or, or even small rocks. You know, they're they're actually quite a quite a violent sort of machine. Considering that the the cutting section of it, there's like a there's a pithy little cover at the back, you know, like it's a little angled bit of plastic, and yeah. you know, it, it's joke. like it's like <laughs> that's not going to stop anything from getting through. I mean, come on, really? It's going to deflect it a little bit. Yeah, you might be. Yeah, maybe it'll deflect. Maybe it won't. I mean, in the end, it's just, uh, good God. So anyway, look, I guess it's the token effort, right? But the problem is, how do you in- encapsulate it? If you encapsulate it, it becomes a motor It becomes a motor mower, in which case, you know, well, it's the wrong tool for the job. But anyway, look, the point is that those sorts of glasses will stop that getting in your eyes. If you're using a grinder, an angle grinder, another good example, you know, bench grinder, any of those sorts of things, you know, if you're using a drill, a high-speed drill, you know, as drills go into any material, you know, they are going to kick out debris. And m- most of the time, it's going to powderize and accumulate uh, down uh, in the bottom of the hole and then down on the on the floor, you know, gravity being what gravity is. But the truth is that if it's uh, metallic or, you know, sometimes uh, certain hardwoods, it can still th- kick stuff out at you and it can still get you in the face. You know, so it's stuff like that. You know, you should be using... Um, yeah, you, know, you should be using protective glasses. And the other thing you can do from that, if you if you don't like protective glasses, is a full on face shield, which is you know the ones they saw, like they sit on your head like a hat, and they've got a, a, like a a pivot point just above your ears, and you can lift the entire perspex marks mask up, and you can lower the perspex marks mask down, and it's a it's a, a curved clear piece of perspex, and it covers your entire face all the way around to your ears. I mean that's ideal. It's heavier, yeah, you know, bulkier. It's you know even less, even less comfortable. But what what that does is is that'll protect your entire face from debris. So in in that case, you won't get it in your mouth or up your nose, or you won't get cuts on your face or or, or anything like that. So that's just that's another example of of PPE um, gloves. You know, people underestimate just how important their hands are. We use our hands for everything that we do, pretty much. I mean, beyond the obvious, if you're a geek typing on a keyboard or, you know, holding a smartphone or, I mean, go beyond that. It's like opening a door, making a phone call, you know, driving a car, uh, pushing the button just to get on and off, a, you know, to get into a lift or, or, you know, holding onto a railing when you're going up and down stairs. And you use your hands for everything. And yet, how many people do you know that put gloves on uh, when they're out operating, uh, you know, mowers and and drills and so on in the yard? And they, they just, they don't. And and they re- and people really should because you know if you cut your hand it, it's going to take a while to heal because that that surface on your hand is always in use always in motion very sensitive as well lots of nerve endings so it's generally going to sting so you know you should take better care of your your hands with gloves and you know same thing with with petrol another example is WD forty you, you guys have got WD forty over there oh yeah mm-hmm. so WD forty is it's a highly toxic. Uh, little concoction, and if you read through the instructions on it, it's uh, it, it says use in well ventilated area, and um, you have to supposed to have uh, gloves on. You're supposed to have long sleeve. You know, you're not supposed to get this stuff on your skin. I'll Eye protection, like, like PB blaster, like for loosening up. I mean, like it's like serious. The serious version of that for taking off rusty car parts and stuff like that. 
Yeah, oh my sure. God, yeah. Yeah. You don't want any of that in your eyes. It's bad news. Yeah, it's it's horrible, horrible stuff. I mean, it does a great job at what it does, yeah. sure. But, but what know. it does is, is melt through melt through exhaust parts that have been exposed to wintry conditions for years. Not going to yeah, be so ex- great on your skin. Uh, someone, uh, Clinton in the chat room has just admitted to using WD-40 <laughs> to clean grease off his hands. Um, yeah, n- naughty Clinton. Please don't do that. Um, the, the thing is that all of this stuff, you know, people need to be aware of it and they need to be able to have access. They need to have access to this sort of PPE. Yeah, and honestly, it's really not that expensive and you should go out and get it. Any hardware store will have it. So uh, like Home Depot will have all of this stuff. So anyway, okay. I want to talk a little bit more about um, my experience and sort of my my, evol- my evolution, really, I guess, as it were, uh, sp- particularly about whippersnippers, you know, brush cutters, uh, weed whackers. So when I was a kid, uh, I was a teenager at the point I was allowed to use the, uh, the whippersnipper and started taking care of the yard. At that point in time, you know, well, I was a teenager, you know, and it's not like I, I had a, the best role model. The role model I had was uh, my grandfather and he, um, and I don't, I don't mean anything, that came out badly. I don't mean, you know, I'm not speaking ill of my grandfather, but he was of the generation where there was no safety, anything, right? So, you know, this is all, there was just none of that. So, you know, he fought in the Second World War and he was very much a just get in, get it done, get out kind of, uh, kind of mentality. And that was not just him. It was very typical of, of, of that generation. And there's still a lot of people out there like that. And, you know, that's, that's okay. It's just that I was never given any instruction at all on safety precautions to be taken. So I would start off being a teenager and I would, um, first of all, I'd use a whip snipper with my sneakers. Uh, second of all, I would wear shorts. Uh, no, I had glasses, of course, and they were big dorky glasses. Ugh. I look at the photos of myself at that age and cringe, um, but never mind. That's okay, uh, I guess. Um, I hope I've developed taste. I don't know if I have. It's probably – I'm not really sure. Anyhow, I guess the point is that minimal, if if any, eye protection, and so I wasn't wearing a long sleeve shirt either. So I was basically – none of those safety precautions that I just mentioned, no gloves, no nothing. I wasn't wearing any of them, not a single thing. And I would come in from – doing the yard and it was a, a quarter, well, somewhere between quarter and a half acre block in size. So reasonable size, but not um, not tiny bunny means, but also not as big as the block I'm living on now. But the point is that my legs would be covered in cuts, uh, very, very small cuts, you know, like very small, like paper cuts. Some of them be a little bit li- little bit bigger, but bottom line, it was, it was just, yeah, you know, I, I would come in injured. And most of the time, you just wouldn't bother with it. You'd be fine, you know, no big deal. And within a few days, uh, the cuts would have healed. That was the end of it. But every now and then, one would get infected, and then you'd have to, you know, put, you know, cream and a band aid or whatever else, and be sore for, a, you know, for a week, and then it'd be all good. Now I'm not sort of, you know, sucking or crying about it, of course, because that'd be definitely not a manly thing to do. But the point is that by not taking any safety precautions whatsoever, I had, um, let's say, every fifth time, let's say roughly, I had about a week's worth of, of recovery due to a, due to an, an, a small infection. Uh, in one of the cuts in my in my legs. Now, is that a big deal? I don't know. But the point is, fast forward to today. And now, when I do the whippersnipping, I always wear my work boots. That is to say, my steel cap work boots, which are you know, which are made of thick leather and you know, chemically hardened uh, soles, and obviously the steel cap. 
ain't no way that that that, that line cord is ever going to cut through those boots. Uh, the next thing, of course, is I'm wearing my drill pants, cotton drill pants, my long sleeve shirt from one of the companies I used to work for. Uh, and yeah, I'm wearing all of this stuff and eye protection and over the top of my glasses, actually, I tend not to, I tend to put my contacts in when I do it. But the point is that I'm wearing all of this stuff now. So it takes another, let's say, I don't know, realistically another three or four minutes. I've still got to put shorts on, still got to put a shirt on, but you know, it's just a little bit more, a little bit more effort to put that extra stuff on, but it's really not a huge investment. And at the end of it all, when I you know, strip off and I'm and I'm and I'm cooling down afterwards, I'm not injured. But the worst I've got is that horrible industrial vibration feeling in my hands from holding the damn thing because they they vibrate like hell. I forgot to mention hearing protection as well. So that's the whole point: is that people, a lot of people, shortcut straight to the right. Let's go do the let's go do the mowing. Get, you know, fire it up. Let's go. Take a few more minutes. Put on the right PP before you do it, and you'll come away less injured. And even if it's that one every once every five times that you you get an infection from one of the cuts or something, you know, seriously, just do it. It's worth it. It's an investment. One of the other things that I've seen uh, in the last 25, 30 years or so is the evolution of the push mowers. When I was a kid, it was very common for push mowers to simply have an open back. And the open back, you would simply hook on the, um, you'd hook on your grass catcher and you'd mow around the yard and it would, well, oddly catch the grass. But if you took it off, for whatever reason, it was just there and it was open. It's sort of like a little deflecty guard thingy, but frankly, not so much. It wasn't, yeah, there was no actual stone guard there. It was sort of an assumed thing that you would like, you know, it wasn't, there was no stone guard. It was like there was a, there was an exit at the side and that was it. So you could kick out stones and everything and you know, it, they would just go flying out the side. And what's happened is that as I was growing up, I saw them starting to add stone guards to these things. And the stone guards got right down low, right down to the grass level, which means when you push them, there's a little bit more friction in some cases. And But the idea is if you kick a stone out, it hits the stone guard, it doesn't go any further. Or, or anything else that's on the, you know, on the ground that you might mow over like a roller skate or something. Uh, now, there's a vague Simpsons reference. Anyhow, the thing is that that sort of attitude is now becoming much more prevalent. So you're going to see a lot more guards. So like when you when you see the tractors on the side of the the freeways, and like the interstates and highways and so on, you know, and they're doing the mowing, they'll have the chains down the back of the uh, of the big the big mowing, uh, cutting attachments, and that's to stop you know stones from kicking up. But I remember distinctly when I was a kid, there were no such things. Yeah, so this sort of evolution of, okay, well, we recognize that there's a simple way of overcoming this issue. So they're building more of that safety into the devices where they can. Sometimes it can be annoying, but you know what? It, it, the, the point is that it's saving someone from being injured, and that's, that's, that's what matters. Mulching, uh, the op- we had a mulching one growing up, so it, didn't, it, it was like a, everything just went straight down unless it was you know, kind of propelled with enough force to bounce back off the ground and up out. Sure. And it was kind of bad because it ended up just leaving tons of grass clippings all over the lawn and didn't really look that great. But yeah, yeah the, I mean, the one we have now is the, you know, has the big bag to catch everything and um, occasionally just had that, had that off for a minute either because it was full 
and I just or I just need to do a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's amazing how how the power <laughs> it'll, it'll propel things out there with. But um, I miss the mulching one to be honest. So <laughs> easy. Cool. Well, uh, the other thing is, of course, um, the noise. And I know I've had done a whole episode on noise, but. Uh, yeah, just a quick note here. Mowers and you know, whippersnippers, they, they make a fair bit of noise. And the worst part of it is they're not they're quite close to your ear, especially whippersnipper where the engine is usually uh, up at about shoulder height. Mm-hmm. It's quite close to your ear. It's it'd be less it'd be somewhere between one to two feet from your ear. So less than a meter, that's pretty close. So you're gonna hear that pretty loud. And if they're 85, 89 dBA, then you know, you should have to be wearing hearing protection. Otherwise you use that for an hour. Uh, if I'm doing the the edges around my yard, it can take about forty forty five minutes to do them all because it's 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 an acre. It's a quite a yeah. So it's like four hundred and hang on, it's like one hundred and twenty. I'm doing math in my head. Look, it's it's a fair few meters uh, anyway. It's a, a fairly long fence line plus around the house plus around the swing set plus around the you shed. Got a little two stroke, about a, yeah, a few feet away yeah. from your ears the whole time. Exactly. So you should be wearing hearing protection, no question, no doubt. Uh, although I, I'm, I'm reasonably sure that my tinnitus did not come from that. Uh, I, yeah, I'm stupid listening to music too damn loud. Anyway, that's fine. So um, well, actually, it's not fine, but it's done now. So moving on with life. Okay, uh, enclosed footwear. That's kind of obvious, but I even saw people when I was <laughs> when I was growing up when they were mowing in their uh, thongs, you know, flip flops, and I just couldn't believe it. But now, well, thinking keep, back now, you know, I keep thinking about motorcycles. Right, I used to ride and. Yeah. I was usually pretty good about gear. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have like a full, full leather set, but I had, you know, I had, I don't know, Kevlar type pants, whatever, and uh, the boots and everything. And I'll see people going around with obviously a helmet, right? But I went over the handlebars once, and if I hadn't had that, I would have been done. But I'll see people all the time with uh, shorts on and flip flops, and so they got their their legs hanging there inches away from the exhaust pipe. And it just, yeah. what you know, what you're talking about, these, these little injuries you'd get all the time, um, as opposed to, you know, some big catastrophic thing. It's like, yeah, that adds up. Absolutely. I mean, every time you roll the dice, every time you, yeah. Yeah. Every time you don't <laughs> wear some form of protection, you're increasing the odds that you're going to do some permanent long-term damage. Or if you've got an issue, uh, you know, if it, let, let's say that you, you know, use the, you use the mower once every, oh, Let's use a whippersnipper for once once a month. Oh, come on, realistically? Yeah, okay. Let's say once a month. So that's uh, 12 times a year. And all it takes is one event in every, you know, 50. You're going to have one happen in that decade. You know, something is going to happen. You're going to get something kick up into your eye and maybe get some eye damage. So it's going to be that one time that you don't wear a face shield. So you should wear a face shield every time. You should wear all your PPE when you're doing this. And I'm I, I, sorry, I get so used to saying PPE, personal protective equipment, but... Uh, the, the next one I just wanted to quickly talk about was, um, when you're painting in the house, if you're, uh, if you're sanding down, always wear a dust mask because believe me, you do not want paint dust in your lungs, uh, in your nose or anything like that. And when you are painting, it's got to be well ventilated because the fumes of that stuff is, uh, is quite bad and, and, and toxic. So that, that, that's just sort of, you know, some of the, some of the little ones, uh, that I was that I'd like to to cover, but before I go on, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about Typeform. Yeah, Typeform is a solution for the big problem of gathering data on your website. Forms are a key component of doing business online, but up till now, they've meant a lot of work to design, configure, and administer. 
and the results have usually been pretty unflattering. There are other form builders out there that take care of some of the problems. They make it easier to get something basic up, but creating something great is still hard. Typeform is the only form builder that allows you to get unlimited responses for free. As many questions as you want, as many answers as you get, Typeform doesn't limit your interaction. Typeforms are beautifully designed and have cross-platform compatibility baked in. They're tailored to look and work differently on desktops, on smartphones, and on tablets. Design is about how it works, and Typeforms are built to work, regardless of the device. The platform itself is a joy to use, both as a customer creating a Typeform and a user interacting with one. The UI is sexy, clean, and fast, and designing even complex series of questions is made simple through their dashboard. The UX is focused on asking and answering one question at a time, just like real human conversation, so it doesn't feel overwhelming and nobody gets lost looking at what's coming up next. Typeform champions good user experience and design. This helps you create a space in which users will be more willing to answer and more likely to give honest answers. From customer feedback and surveys to contests and landing pages, event organization, in the classroom, Typeform lets your imagination fly. People are using Typeforms in a huge variety of ways to make online interactive stories, holiday cards, team presentations, avatar creation, the list goes on and on. For a limited time, Typeform is offering our listeners a three-month free trial of their new Typeform Pro service. Just sign up at www.typeform.com and upgrade to the Pro plan from the dashboard. Make sure to use the coupon code FIATLUX to get your free three months. Thank you to Typeform for sponsoring the show and for making it easier for people to get to know each other better. It's awesome. So, John, what you were just talking about there, I'm thinking about uh, this bottle that of, of, of what is called liquid fire. Um, do you guys have that there? Do you have liquid uh, fire? Possibly under a different name. What is it exactly? I have no idea what it actually is, but it's supposed to... Um, well, it's designed to uh, clear out, you know, uh, clogged pipes, and it's one of the things that, like... Oh, like Drano. Like Drano, but... So it's a big red bottle, and it comes in a plastic bag that, you know, it's, it's like, real thick plastic, too. It's not just, like, it's not just, like, saran wrap. And the entire, I mean, I'm talking, like, eight, nine paragraphs of warning on the side, and a little booklet, and... It basically, you know, it's basically, uh, yeah, you need to have a full mask on. You need to have gloves. You need, they, they even suggest having like a, a bucket or some sort of, of a tub to put over the, the drain after you pour this stuff down. And we got it because our, our tub upstairs is just, it's really rusted and it's just, it's clogged up and bad. You know, we've tried some, we've tried snaking it out. We've tried plunging it. We had a plumber to come over and look at it. And he, he actually suggested this. So we got it, and I when I looked at it, and, and the more I kept reading about this thing, I'm just like, yeah, hey Jen, I don't I don't really think I want to do this. I'm a little scared. Uh, and I looked it up online, uh, found this great YouTube video of this guy talking about it, and uh, uh, this this stuff actually like if if the pipes are too rusted, it will just eat through them. It's just uh, yeah, well, I'm not sure what kind of uh, what it is, but it's not hydrochloric acid. It, uh, it, it's one of the bad ones, right? It's it's going yeah. to burn right through anything. And uh, and it'll actually, uh, yeah, if your pipes are too rusted, it will just eat right through them and you'll end up having just water just pouring down into your basement. Um, yeah, too much of a good thing. So a little bit of acid is good, but too much is like... Yeah, and I'm sure it's it's fine if you know what you're doing, but it, it, it is that kind of thing where it, like you don't... 
you're not walking around kind of thinking about safety and day to day affairs, and then you run into something like that, it's like, oh, I, you know, I don't even, I don't even have. Uh, like I was like going around, like, well, I'll use these gloves, and I don't have a full face mask, but I'll, you know, I've got mm. some aviator glasses. Will that work? Yeah, that's and, the uh, problem. No, so we still have kind of a clogged up tub at the moment. It's not good. Well, the the, the thing is. With that sort of stuff in particular, yeah, I'd be I'd be using gloves and I'd be using safety glasses and I'd be making sure it's well ventilated. Uh, it's it is it is a pain in the neck. I will I will admit with that stuff and um you know yes it's a shame sneaking it out didn't work. But uh, well, in any just, case, just pay a professional. I think yeah yeah sometimes that. it's sometimes it's better to do that. Although but, I, uh, I, I I wondered at first if it was just if if essentially that the the warnings were were a form of marketing in disguise. But yeah. the more I read about it, I decided that was not the case. This is apparently serious stuff. Like you you actually have to ask for it at the counter. So I will admit there is a certain degree of the um attitude of all the warnings on the side <laughs> of a product are there for the stupid people. You know, it's someone in some place in, you know, wherever, back town, wherever you know, they they stuck the power drill in their eyeball. Therefore, you know, in the instruction, there's a you know, instruction number 5,712 says you should not insert the drill into your eyeball. And I think a lot of people look at the, the warnings on products and to some extent dismiss them on the basis that, well, you know, it's it's being sold in a supermarket. You know, it's not it couldn't be that it's not really that dangerous. It's just it's like it's in the supermarket. Anything really dangerous, they wouldn't let me buy that over the counter. And these warnings, well, you know, they're just for people that don't know what they're doing. And honestly, geez, just read the warnings. I mean, yeah, that's my advice. But anyway, all right, look, the next thing I really wanted to quickly talk about before we move on to the next main section is the simple things, the simple, simple ideas. I mean, I've been talking about yard work. Okay. So let's forget about yard work just for a minute. Well, just maybe a little bit briefly. The way you hang your tools, if you hang your tools, some people are really organized with their sheds. I wish I was one of those people, but one day I will be. And when I do, you always hang the tool uh, with the heaviest part of it as close to the ground as possible. So if you've got an axe, obviously the head of the axe is the heaviest part. So you're going to hang it so that that is actually pointing down closest to the ground. Because what you're trying to do is if that falls off the side of the shed or wherever it's hung up on, if it falls off, then it's got the minimum amount of potential energy to cause any damage. If you hang it up the other way with the axe head at the top and it falls off, it's got a lot more energy before it hits the ground. And if you're nearby when that happens, that's going to cause you a much bigger injury. Sim- simple, simple th- idea like that. You know, it's something to think about. It works for all sorts of things. Axes, rakes, brooms, all that stuff. Simple, silly things. People th- but don't even think about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm thinking about it now like all our stuff is hung up the other way. Like yeah, and this is ex- exactly. Now, I mean, it may only happen once in 10 years, but such a simple idea like that. And it's still not a guarantee that you're not going to get your toes crushed or something by by an axe that's falling a few inches. But, you know, re- realistically, no, it's not going to cause a problem. But if you had it the other way around, it did. You might just be surprised how much damage it can do. But, you know, the the obvious other ones are things like sharp corners around the house, especially if you've got kids, uh, you know, keeping knives and, and in, in a safe drawer. That's that's difficult to reach, difficult to get at. Putting your tools away when you're done with them, leaving electric tools lying around, 
Uh, I mean, I'm I'm in a case with my with my kids where if I'm working on a job and I stop to have lunch, I actually stop and have lunch right next to where I'm doing my work, so that I make sure the kids don't wander up and oh, dad left the power drill out, and oh, this is fun, and yeah, so you you have to be careful and honestly, um, yeah, secure your work site <laughs> if you're leaving it for any period of time, especially if you've got kids wandering around. But when you're done, put the tools away. Otherwise, people will come along and bump them, break them, or or hurt themselves, or kids will play with them thinking that they're fun, and then yeah, you'll be up at the hospital with a, a drill implanted in their leg or something horrible. So that's uh, general tidiness. As people people so like say, well, you know, a tidy desk is the sign of a sick mind. But frankly, um, no, a tidy and work environment of any kind, even in your house, uh, is much better for safety, hands down. So being tidy is a good thing. Okay. So the next big uh, topic is confined spaces. So what do you think of as a confined space, Ben? Um, have, have you heard the terminology before? Yeah. So, uh, usually yeah. when painting or dealing with yep. solvents or anything. And uh, Sure. Yeah, from my experience with that is is anything without, you know, if, if you're in your house, if you don't have every single window open, your house is a confined space. Well, that's the extremist perspective, and that's and I kind of see where that comes from, but it gets this general idea. Uh, the technical definition of a confined space ten, has evolved in the last you know couple of decades since I've been aware of it anyway, to the point at which now where it's any area that that people will habitate or occupy, uh, where the airflow through the room uh, is not consistent. And where toxins, gases, or liquids can accumulate. So the problem is, of course, you would say, okay, because the extremist definition, like you just said, oh, you close all the windows in your house, you're in a confined space, right? Well, yes and no. If your house doesn't have any toxic chemicals or gases in it, then technically, no, it's not a confined space because there's no opportunity for things to go wrong so much. But then again, yeah, that's also a simplistic a simplification because you know you set something on fire or you spill you know, some kerosene or something in the house when you're cleaning, and that could then create an issue. Well, right, like, to... like that bathroom where I was going to use the liquid fire is, is you know, the, exactly. door, the door in and a pretty small window that doesn't really even open all the way. Um, Absolutely. Yes, yeah. exactly. So if you're going to be overwhelmed by fumes, that's one thing. But the, the, the most critical thing for, for us uh, humans is oxygen. So when I'm talking about the following bit about confined spaces, I'm going to focus primarily on oxygen, and there's good reasons for that. But um, the most common, truly confined spaces, or the ones that are, how should I say, um, the ones that are most likely to kill you, are things like tanks, sewers, um, manholes, large drains, even stormwater drains. And you may think, well, I don't go into a tank. I don't even have a tank. And I don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean an army tank. I mean Aww. like a water tank. I know, I know. Here, no, no. Another episode. I actually don't know much about tanks, so there probably never will be in a tank episode. But anyway, uh, yeah. So no tanks like water tanks, for example. So sometimes they'll have hatches, and people will go inside to clean them. And if they're not prepared properly, then that's an issue. Mind you, most individuals would not do that. Then again, I've also heard of some people doing that to save money. Oh, I can clean the inside of my tank. Go inside the tank, and then they die. Uh, so anyhow, um, sewers. Obviously, who's going to go crawling into a sewer? Well, you're probably not going to do that. Uh, but then again, sometimes 
uh, let's say you're walking along and you drop your keys or something and they go down a drain and you can see the drain and all you got to do is lift that grill off and go into the drain and reach down and grab your keys, whatever. Well, what happens if that drain is too deep and you figure, oh, okay, well, I could just sort of like get in there and I could, if I could just climb in briefly and reach down and grab the keys, I'd be all set. What kind of drain do you have that you can climb down? Well, big cities have some like that, to be honest. But, you know, the reality oh, yeah. is... You know, we, yes. we actually just found... Uh, I'm sorry, it's kind of off topic, but it's it's, it's yeah, sure. crazy. We Some guys from the, the city were out in our front yard the other day. Well, not the other day. A couple months ago, it was still warm. And um, apparently there is a, there is a big uh, uh, water cistern that runs under the front yard of our house and our neighbor's house. And it's this huge... Um, it's It's from like... I don't know. I mean, the first part of the 20th century, it's a, it's a, uh, like a, a, a freshwater tank. Essentially. It's not like a, not like a septic tank. It's just this, this huge. It's a tank. We have a tank. Wow. Don, we have a tank, <laughs> but, um, yeah, they're, I mean, they, these guys are climbing down in it and it's, you know, and there's like water up to like their, their waists. And, uh, uh, yeah. So if, if uh, the water wars come, we're good. But uh, I don't know why. I just I think it's cool. Well, we'll get to we'll get to the precautions in a minute. But I okay. just want to sort of flesh this out in a minute because that's, that's freak. They're freaking me out with that story right there. All right. Uh, I- interesting point from the the chat room, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but I think I will because it's pretty related. Uh, so Zach Suchek has, points out in the chat room that uh, he's aware of people that climb into cement trucks and uh, use jackhammers to clean it out. One of the things that people don't think about, and I've come across this before, is that you know how cement mixer trucks have always got that big barrel on the back and the barrel's always spinning, 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 spinning. It spins in one direction and it sort of you know falls back on itself. But if you stomp it and spin it in the other direction, it's got an auger inside and that auger pushes the concrete out up the top and down the chute out the back. So, you know, pretty, pretty – and that's the way that it was done for years and years and years until they, you know – Came up with this idea of uh, of pumping concrete uh, with large uh, concrete pumps, and that's uh, another story altogether. But the point is that sometimes these things uh, don't quite get rid of all of their concrete in time, and some of it's fast setting concrete, and oh dear, it sets inside. So what are you going to do? You're going to buy yourself a whole new truck? Are you going to live with the fact that it's going to be a bit wobbly when you put in your next load and there's a big hard solid chunk of concrete inside it, and every time it spins, the truck wobbles from side to side, probably a safety issue just there. So what they do, they climb in and they chisel this stuff out. And chisel, literally chisel it out with a, with a jackhammer, none too subtly. Now, that's the sort of environment that you really would hope that you had someone on the outside uh, with a, a blower in there and a, and a tube forcing fresh air in and potentially even with another one extracting uh, air out, like through multiple ports and these things. Mm-hmm. And you would really hope that they had dust masks on and hearing protection because, of course, jackhammer going off in an enclosed space like that Sound pressure waves would be intense, so it's it's really quite uh, quite a dangerous little activity. So thank you for bringing that up, Zach. And my personal story on this is my very first job as a as an engineer, and I was still a student at the time, but they gave me quite a lot of responsibility. So it was a fantastic job. I loved it. It was working at the Stanmore Power Station. I've talked about this before, and um, in uh, I think it was on the last episode actually uh, about the vibration. So. We we had an issue with a the slurry mixing tank, and a slurry mixing tank is this. Well, oddly enough, it's a, it's a tank, and the electrostatic precipitators are essentially 
uh, or sometimes I just call them precepts. So what happens is you once you burn off all of the coal dust and you've you know it's created all its heat, heat up the water and it goes to steam and makes the thing spin and you get electricity, all of that waste, uh, that hot air has got essentially ash in it. So the coals turn to ash. So that ash is extremely hot. So they run it down through a heat exchanger and then it goes out through these things called electrostatic precipitators. And what they are is essentially a massive uh, steel box with a bunch of uh, probes inside them. And these probes are long, solid uh, copper copper, uh, spikes. And they're energized to quite a high voltage. And that attracts, uh, through electrostatic attraction, attracts all the particles. So then these particles, they build up and they build up and they cake on the outside of these things. And then they, uh, ever so often, they turn them off in a sequence. And sometimes there's little knockers on them. Some do, some don't. And they do is a little tap, 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 tap. It all falls off and it falls down a chute at the bottom. Oh, and that's your. Yeah. I've seen those at the, the Alcoa plant in Cleveland. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Very common. Very common design. A lot of the places these days, for environmental reasons, have gone to bag filters, and bag filters are you know much much better. They let hardly any ash out at all uh, because there's environmental requirements for particulates you know, expelled into the atmosphere and blah 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 blah. But anyway, the point is, all this dry stuff falls down the chute at the bottom, and it's a dry powder. But you can't pump a powder. So most systems, you've got a choice. You either go the dry slurry or a wet slurry system. So the one at Stanwell was a wet slurry system. So the wet slurry system mixes that powder immediately with some with some water. So when they purify the water, there's some waste water left on the outside. They call that the chemical water. So the chemical water, it's got no use for anything. So you might as well use it to mix with the slurry, uh, to, to mix with the, the ash to make a slurry. And then you can pump the slurry. And then they pump the slurry about four or five miles away out to the ash dam, where it literally just flows out of the ash dam and sets hard as concrete. And I literally mean as hard as concrete. And that's exactly where Zach's story brought this back to my mind. So the scene is set. We have a slurry mixing tank with two big rotating blades. This thing's huge. This thing's, you know, a good about 12 meters high, maybe, well, maybe 10 meters high. And it's got a small orifice at the bottom where it goes out to the slurry mixing, uh, to the slurry pumps and an entry hatch at the top. And that's all it had. So what happens? Well, a circuit breaker trips. Now, what do you think happens if the mixing action in the tank stops mixing? Well, it kind of sets just like the concrete did in the truck. It sets like concrete, and that's exactly what happened. It literally set. And so we came in in the morning. It was uh, 7 in the morning, something like that. And, yeah, we were interns, so, of course, hey, you know, (laughs) get the intern on this one. Well, what happens? It is set like concrete. They couldn't restart it because obviously it was it was just clogged full and they had absolutely no way of getting rid of the ash, which meant they had to rate back that, that, that unit to a very low amount of power and that was causing all sorts of problems. They had about eight hours where they had to clear this tank, otherwise they were going to have to shut it down. So what did they do? Well, <laughs> they uh, gave us a very... Um, quick confined space uh, refresher. We'd done confined space training a few months previously. They gave us a quick refresher and said, there you go, get in there. So we literally were lowered into this tank with hand pneumatic chisels and we chiseled away and chiseled away. We started by throwing it out the top and then as we were able to clear a path down to the bottom exit, we then started to shovel it out the bottom. The problem with this water, this chemical water I mentioned, it's very high in ammonia because ammonia is one of the things they use to precipitate out some of the metals in the solution. You don't want any metallics in that water that goes through the high-pressure steam process. Otherwise, you get um, uh, you get buildup like you do in a kettle. 
uh, scaling, it's called. So this this water that was mixed in with this ash, it was very high concentrations of ammonia. So to this day, uh, I hate confined spaces. I hate small spaces. I'm a little bit claustrophobic. This probably didn't help. And this experience, I was in there for two and a half hours and I couldn't take it anymore. It was terrible. And I was chiseling away at this stuff and I just, I had to get out of there. So to this day now, if I smell ammonia, I have flashbacks, not quite a panic attack, but certainly a, a very vivid flashback to that moment where I was chiseling out all of this, this, this concrete slurry. It was absolutely nightmare of a job. One of the dirtiest jobs I've ever done. So there you go. I didn't expect to talk about that, but there you have it. It makes me think back to the automation episode. Um, yes. Well, and the and the morality episode, like just just kind of picture guys crawling around these gigantic machines. You know, it's uh, it's like the old yeah. the Charlie Chaplin modern world, right? You're inside this thing, and uh. yeah, look, it's 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 terrible. I it was a it was a horrible experience, but you know that said. Um, we had all the precautions except one, which I'll get to in a minute. <coughs> Excuse me. So, okay, look. Um, so we've talked a little bit about confined spaces and what they are. But I want to talk a little bit about oxygen. Now, contrary to popular belief, the percentage of oxygen in the air, percentage is a ratio, which is why it's a dangerous thing. People quote, oh, yeah, it's like you know, 10% of the time I'm right. <laughs> Whatever. It's a ratio. So all ratios are dependent upon what it's being compared to. So 20.8% is the official-ish figure. Official-ish, God, it's not even a word. That's the percentage of- Official-esque? Yeah, okay, what's wrong with that? It's got to be some kind of anecdata. English is Anyhow, a living language. <laughs> yeah, it's a living language I'm killing every bloody day, a little bit at a time. Anyhow, 20.8% uh, of oxygen uh, in the air. That's actually about the same percentage, roughly, till about 85 kilometers above sea level. It, people tend to think that there's less oxygen higher in the air. Well, yes and no. From a ratio point of view, no. The gas composition right. doesn't change significantly. What does change is the air pressure. and because less air in the air. Exactly. <laughs> less air in the air. That's yeah. it. It sounds a bit weird when you say it like that, but that is exactly what it is. So the number of, air mo- the number of oxygen molecules that your lungs are able to actually draw in in a single breath is significantly reduced. So as you go up in height... You, you know, in altitude, then obviously that affects uh, how much air you can get. And I was when I was putting this a little bit together this afternoon, I, I realized that one of my favorite episodes of Top Gear, the Bolivia special, did you actually see, are you a Top Gear fan at all? Oh, yeah, I'm sure we've seen it, yeah. Well, that's the one where they, they get cars in the Amazon jungle, they drive their way um, into Chile, going high up uh, into the uh, Antiplano, and they drive up really, really high on the side of a of, of a volcano, and they basically have to stop because their cars are stopping working because right. there's not enough oxygen in the air, and they are stopping working because there's not enough oxygen in the air, and they're just like, I can't, I can't talk a sentence. This is too hard, you know. It's like and severe like altitude sickness, and they're lucky that they came out of that alive because some people die doing that from complications. So in any case. Uh, their blood oxygen level got down to about 84% at that altitude. And their altitude in that episode was uh, 17,200 feet, which is 3.26 miles, and that is uh, 5.243 kilometers. So the air pressure up there is about half of of, uh, that at sea level, hence the issue. 
So because there's less air, obviously, as I said, you know, your O2 oxygen stats, your O2 stats get very low and that's a bad thing. The thing that's interesting about it is that your body can adapt given enough time. There are people, there's uh, something like a million or one and a half million people, something like that, that live in that danger area, in that sort of altitude around the entire world. And they live there, they're just fine. And the reason is that, you know, you're there for long enough, your body tends to adapt. And and so there's an, an interesting article in Wikipedia about people that, that train in those sorts of environments if they're, you know, Olympic athletes. So the idea is you 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 train in those environments and you get used to the low oxi- low amounts of oxygen in the air, and although not low percentage. And then when you go down to sea level, which is where majority of the actual Olympic events are held, is at some place, you know, at lower, close to sea level, then the high levels of oxygen will give you uh, a boost, as it were, more energy. Until, of course, your body adapts again and then you lose that advantage. And that's a real thing. They've measured that. So it, it's it's quite, uh, yeah, it's it's quite an interesting effect. So it's not it's not the fact that the body can't adjust. It's that it can't adjust quickly. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. So it's the change in the quantity of oxygen in the air at a rapid pace. That is what the problem is. Uh, just as another little uh, aside when I was thinking about this, as you know, I lived in Calgary for a while. One of the things that happened to me in Calgary was I grew up my whole life, you know, at about 30, 40 meters above sea level or at sea level. So, you know, Rockhampton and uh, the, the coast right, Yapunimi Park, all those sorts of areas, they're all quite low to, the, you know, they're not they're not high upper elevations. I didn't grow up in the mountains. And even Australia has, you know, let's face it, really not a heck of a lot of tall mountains. We barely have mountains that get snow except for the oddly named Snowy Mountains. Anyhow, the point is that when I went to Calgary, it was a kilometer above sea level. So that's like 3,438 feet. And no, I didn't do that in my head. I had that written down. So the difference in air pressure between those is around about 1,010 hectopascals at sea level. And if you want to talk in kilopascals, you can, 101 kilopascals. But for whatever reason, they just tend to quote uh, air pressures in hectopascals in our neck of the woods. So anyway, and it's 891 hectopascals uh, is a standard pressure in Calgary because it's a kilometer above sea level. So... I sort of noticed the difference. Uh, it was subtle, but um, not massive enough at that high altitude. Where I did notice it, though, is I went skiing at Sunshine Village, which is just near Banff, and it's actually, at its base, it's about 1.7 kilometres, so it's it's quite a bit higher at the base. I never went to the summit, although the summit's 2.7 kilometres above uh, sea level, and that's like nearly 9,000 feet. When I was going up from the base camp up to the ski lift area, uh, my nose spontaneously just started to bleed. And it's quite common, actually, when you go up to higher altitudes that you that, uh, that some people, uh, the, the cells, the blood cells in your nose just literally spontaneously rupture because of the difference in, uh, in air pressure. Not related to oxygen, but hey, there you go. Just sort of throw that in there. So, yeah, I felt uh, I spent a very uncomfortable day with nosebleeds when I was trying to learn to ski, which also didn't go well, I'd like to add. But anyhow. Okay, so getting back to Earth again, back down to sea level again or thereabouts. Actually, how high is uh, where you live above sea level roughly? Do you know? Um, we're kind of high up. It's uh, Akron is the in Summit County, so you can guess it's the highest point in Ohio, but I forget. Okay, well while you're doing that, I'll, I'll just keep I'll just keep moving. Um, 
So when we're actually talking about confined spaces, what's the problem? Well, the problem is the lack of oxygen. And oxygen depletion is caused is essentially caused through the consumption of that oxygen, either through biological processes such as the decaying of organic matter, whatever that might be, uh, or displacement by heavier gas. And the most common one that I've come across is hydrogen sulfide. So hydrogen sulfide is more commonly known as rotten egg gas because oddly enough, it smells like rotten eggs. And uh, anyway, it's heavier than air and it's a byproduct of the decomposition of fecal matter, also known as uh, also known as SHIT. So anyhow, um, <laughs> sugar honey iced feet tea. Up. Thousand thousand feet. Okay, still higher than me, but in any case, okay. So the problem with sewer, well, obviously that's a problem with sewers, and you may think, well, I'm not going to go into too many sewers, but stormwater drains can still get hydrogen sulfide in them because sometimes people put wrong drains to the wrong places, and sometimes people use wrong drains for the wrong things, and sometimes people with septic systems uh, empty them out into the wrong drains. Um, a la what was done in, uh, if you've seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I'm not sure if you remember that movie, but he uh, he dumps the uh, the, co- the contents of their um, uh, RV's waste tank into a storm sewer, which doesn't go well later on. So, and that's actually more common than people think. The idea is that you, you're supposed to dispose of that at a, at a safe site. Like, the, like when you leave an RV campground, you're supposed to get rid of all that waste into a special waste holding tank, which they then pump out and is treated at the sewage treatment plant properly. But, uh, you know, still. So it is still possible to get H2S, uh, sorry, hydrogen sulfide uh, in stormwater systems. So you're not safe if you think, oh, it's just stormwater, it's just rainwater, it's not a problem. So anyway, when you're working in a confined space, the oxygen levels that you should know are 19.5%. So below 19.5% at standard temperature and pressure, it is essentially considered unsafe at less than that for you to enter that space. So it must be 19.5% in order for you to safely enter and work in that space. If you drop down to about 15%, so between, let's say, 15 and 19%, you'll start to have impaired coordination. So you'll have trouble like if you're you're trying to use a hammer to hit a hit hit the head of a, a nail, you might struggle. Uh, you'll also start to experience slowing down of your your what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to hit the hammer, then your your arm will just move slower than your your thinking swing harder, but your actual arm will not move as quickly as you're telling it to. Uh, between ten and twelve percent, you'll start gasping for breath and you'll start to experience a complete well loss of judgment and reasoning, and you'll start getting blue lips. Between 8 and 10%, you have a complete loss of coordination. You won't be able to stand and you'll, you'll lapse into unconsciousness. Between 6 and 8%, um, 50% of people will be dead in 6 minutes and everyone will be dead in 8 minutes. When you're down to 4 to 6%, you'll be in a coma within 40 seconds, convulsing, and your respiration will cease and you'll die. So oxygen kind of matters. The thing is, when people look at a confined space like a tank or a, or a drain or whatever that they're crazily thinking of climbing into, they, especially people that aren't in the industry, they're not going to have a gas detector with them that measures oxygen and measures other toxic gases. They're just not going to have it. 
It's not something that, that people have in their tool shed and they're expensive and they need to be calibrated regularly and it's not, it's not something that people commonly have. But that's what you're supposed to have. So the idea is you drop the gas detector down uh, into the confined space to check the quality for a period of time, pull it back out. So you just dangle it down on an end of a string. That's all you got to do. Pull it out and check the results. And when you go in there, you're also supposed to take the gas detector with you on your person for continuous monitoring because the conditions can change in a moment. You don't know. The next thing you're supposed to have is you're supposed to have a harness. So you've got to wear a harness that can support your weight with a tight line connected to it, and that is connected to a recovery tripod above the confined space so that they can literally pull you out. And by they, I'm talking about the one person or two people preferably outside the confined space that are there. Um, in Australia, we, we call them the cockatoos, but the point is that they are your rescuers. So you shouldn't be entering a confined space with at least one person on the outside, all of your rescue gear and a gas detector. That's what you should be doing. And industrially, that's what you have to do. You also have to have you know training that's renewed every six months and it's very tightly regulated because people keep kept dying from this. So anyway, the key message is no second victim. The funny... I say it's funny. It's not funny. The terrible, tragic reality of confined spaces is that typically there's more than one victim. So you would think, you know, oh, someone's, so Farmer Joe's gone and gone into the tank. He's cleaning it out on the inside. No one's heard from him. Someone climbed up the side of the tank, has a look inside after about half an hour looking for him. He hasn't, haven't heard anything from him for half an hour. And he's lying apparently unconscious on the bottom. You think, oh, maybe he's had a stroke or a fit or a bumped his head or who knows, right? I'll just climb down there and pull him out. Oops, second victim. Not enough oxygen. Now you're both dead. And by the time the third person comes along, usually they'll see two people lying in the bottom and, you know, most people are going to compute and they're going to say, well, there's two people unconscious in there. It's unlikely that they both bunked their heads, both had strokes at exactly the same time or close together. So obviously something is wrong. I'm not going to go in there. And they're going to call for more help. And by that, I mean particularly someone like the fire brigade. You know, they're going to call someone. They're not going to climb in there. That said, triple and quadruple fatalities still happen. So no second victim. You see someone unconscious in a confined space, do not go in after them for God's sake. Call someone else. If you've got the rescue gear and it's all attached, you should already be on the outside ready to pull them out. But if you don't have that, do not go in there. So that's that's the thing to remember. The other thing about hydrogen sulfide is that it's heavier than air, therefore it sinks to the bottom. So when you go into a confined space, and this is a trap that people have fallen into in the past, is that they'll put the gas detector in but not right down to the floor. They'll put it down about a foot or two feet above ground level, which is about standing height maybe, and they'll then go in thinking it's all hunky-dory, and then they'll drop a tool, they lean, they lean over to pick it up, and then they pass out. Mm. Like instant unconsciousness because the H2S completely displaces the oxygen. Yeah. So, you know, always all the way to the bottom. But, you know, a lot of this... I hear, I mean, okay. The message is don't go climbing into a confined space. That's it. Just don't do it, okay? Get a professional in to do it. If you're not trained to do it, don't do it. No matter how tempting that thing is, it fell down that drain. Do not climb into the damn drain to get it. If you can, if you can use like something to fish it out, do that. 
You know, if your arm can reach, great. Mind you, that can end badly too if your arm gets stuck. But, you know, be sensible about it. Do not climb into a confined space. And you may think to yourself, well, oh, that's just silly. I'd never do that. Well, here's the thing. I was not always the, um, uh, well, hey, I was young once. Everyone was, right? When I was a kid, um, no one talked about this stuff. I mean, they'd say, oh, you know, don't go into drains and pipes and stuff, you know, I guess. Did they say that? I can't remember anyone telling me specifically not to. So I said every now and then, you know, I was a kid and I was out with my mates and, you know, it's it's hot in the sun. Sometimes you want to sit in the exit of a stormwater drain because it's out of the sun and it's really cool. It's like 10 degrees cooler in there and that's 10 degrees Celsius cooler, um, whatever that is in Fahrenheit. The point is that it's a lot cooler in there. I didn't climb all the way up into them, which would have been even more stupid. But even so, even that was stupid. So, you know, where was where were my parents giving me this lecture? You know, it matters. Do not go in them. Okay. So a lot of people, I think, listening to this might be saying, well, that's all well and good for you, John, because you're an engineer and you're and you're, you know, exposed to confined spaces and so on and so forth. There's big signs up on these things around industrial sites. Confined space, do not enter. It's like unless you can't read, you'll see the big red red and black sign, you'll think something's wrong. But even so, you know, people become more aware of it in industrial environment. What does that mean in the real world for real people? Well, maybe confined spaces are a bit of a stretch, but this is still worth talking about because, you know, as I said, you know, kids, kids are kids and it's worth making sure they know the risks. Even some adults don't understand the risks. But let's talk about a couple of things that are very specific to inside the home. And some statistics I found, there's a nice uh, nice website that talks about this that's in the show notes. About 18,000 people die in the United States from household injuries. And that's not to mention, obviously, the number of people that are injured that wouldn't be in that list. It could be five to ten times that number more are injured. Yeah, you know, usually you'll have near you'll have twenty near misses uh, for every injury, and you'll have ten injuries for every fatality or something like that. There'll be there's a there's a scale. Anyway, so of that, one third of those is from falls, and when I say falls, it's prim- primarily because of slippery surfaces in the household, and usually that means wet areas. So in in your ensuite or your bathroom, your shower recess. You know, water gets on the floor and what? It's tiles. They're smooth tiles. Traditionally, why are they smooth tiles? Because they look nice. They feel nice. But you don't want that. What you want is you want is non-slip floor tiles, ones that when they get wet, they still have a fair bit of friction. So you don't just slip over and crack your head open. And a lot of people look at uh, handrails, you know, how you can get handrails put around bars. Oh, they're just for disabled people. Helps them get in and out of the bath. Yeah, well, you know what? It actually helps normal people getting in and out of the bath too. So there's not much extra expense to get some handrails fitted so that it's safer for you to get in and out of that bath. You'd be amazed how many people slip and hurt themselves each day just getting in and out of a bath. And a quarter of that figure of people that died were from fires and burns, severe burns. So, of course, I couldn't have a whole episode of Pragmatic about safety not talk about house fires. So finally, we'll talk about that. When you've got, fires have been a problem for a very long time, obviously, and more electricity in the household, you've still got, you've always got the old, the old gas that's been around for a very long time. 
So gas lights originally, now I've got gas, gas stoves and even in some cases gas fridges, uh, gas water heating systems, you know, all that stuff, gas, gas everything. I don't have any gas in my house, but it's all electric, but then you know, I don't have big heating requirements here where I live. So in any case, fire is a big problem. First of all, first and foremost, you have to have an evacuation plan. If it's a building, a commercial building or an industrial site, you have to have, by law, an evacuation plan. It needs to be posted up in multiple locations. Exits have to be clearly marked. But in residences, you don't have to do that. Not legally. I mean, but why not? Why is it any damn different? You know, it's like the company doesn't want to get sued, so that's why they do it. I guess that's the pessimistic way of thinking about it, so they legislate about it. But seriously, why the heck is that not required? I don't get it. The best thing you can do is even if it's not required, do it anyway, especially if you've got kids. If it's just the two, if it's just you on your own, then that's easy. You know what you want to do. But if you've got two people, it's important to, to say, here's what we're going to do if there is a fire. If there's a fire in this part of the house, we're going to use this exit and get out this door and we'll meet out the front. Like we'll pick a spot. We'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll you know, meet by the cherry tree. Hopefully no one chopped it down. So the point is that you've got to have some kind of a plan, run through it and practice it and do it every six months. And when I say every six months, do it at the extremes of the seasons. Do it in the middle of winter when if you're in an environment where you, like in, where you live, where you've been, where you've got ice and snow, yeah, you've got to factor that into the equation. Maybe it's it's too dangerous to escape or too or difficult to escape uh, through a certain certain method. Oh, we'll just climb out the window. Well, that's great on this top story if everything's covered in ice and you just slide off the roof and hurt yourself through a different means other than being burnt. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's an extreme case. But try it at the extremes so in the middle of summer, middle of winter. Cover your bases that way. But practice it regularly. At least have a plan. And make sure you've got a common point to rendezvous. And once everyone, your head count, you know how many people are in the house. Once those people are out of the house, do not go back in. Don't go back in for anything. I don't care what you think it's worth. It's not worth that. Never go back in. How many times have you heard about, you know, the the the, the person that went back in just to save the photo albums or something? Right. You know, I mean, it, just don't, 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 don't whole backing up data episode, you know, hey, yeah. have them in a fireproof safe, people, and then trust that the fireproof safe is actually fireproof and, you know, hey, or that the fireys get there in time to prevent damage reaching that part of the house. You'd be stunned how quickly smoke can overcome you. You really would. You think, I'll take a deep breath, I'll be in and out. No, when you're running around, if you're just floating in a pool, you can hold your breath for 40 seconds, you know, a minute. You know, people that do natural uh, breathe, diving, you know, what they call that... Um, where they can keep help hold their breath for like multiple minutes underwater. Well, that's because of pressure and all that. And there's a lot of practice. If you're running or crawling and, and exerting a lot of energy, you cannot hold your breath as long as you think you can. And 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 a uh, a wet a wet towel or a wet um uh, a handkerchief over your mouth is not going to save you. So anyway. The 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 best way, of course, is um to make sure that you've got lots of access points. Sorry, I should say egress points out of the house. Safety is a safety. Sorry, security is a big problem. So people put security grills in their house, and and I think, well, you should. I mean, for insurance purposes and for your own peace of mind, fine, you should do that. So the problem with that is that most security grills are permanently affixed to the frame. 
So that's a problem because in the in the bad old days when it was just a fly screen, you would open the window and you could just pop the fly screen out with a single you know kick or even a, a, a sharp push with your hand and you'd be able to escape through the window. If you didn't have fly screens, you didn't even have that problem. But now if you put a security grill in, you're up for smashing some glass. So, you know, you better be sure that your three-year-old kid can smash through a window pane of glass. I guarantee you my can't. So what's the solution is if you're going to have security grills, you have to make sure you get uh, the special fire escape screens. There's a whole bunch of different names. There's no real standard name, just fire safe screens or fire escape screens or safe escape screens. I found dozens of different names, different brand names mainly. And the idea is that they have a, a release pin and a hinge. So what you do is you pull a release pin, open a flap, and then you push literally like a miniature door, the security grill out of the way. And it's still pretty well as secure as having it completely stuck in place, drilled in place, cemented in place, or whatever in place. And that gives you easy access out the window if you have to get out in a fire. See, ordinarily, if you've got a room that's, ha- that's habitated, you're supposed to have two exits. One exit is your primary and one is your backup in case your primary is blocked. So if you're in a room, a kid's bedroom, and you need to get out and the hallway is blocked, they can't go out their main door, the only option is the window. And if they can't break the glass, they're dead. That's it. So you have to make sure that you think of that. Anyway, something to keep in mind. Okay, um, moving on. Okay, so... Smoke detectors is the last real thing to talk about, and that is everyone should have smoke detectors. If you don't, go and buy some as soon as you stop listening to this episode. Go get them, put them up. I don't care if you're renting, put them up anyway. And don't whinge about having to change the batteries every 12 months. I don't care. Change the damn batteries every 12 months. Whatever. Get lithium batteries so you have to change them every three or four years. Either way, just get them. Because the earlier warning you've got, the, le- the, the better chance of A, you have of getting out, and B, if you catch it in a really early stage, you might even be able to extinguish it before you lose your house or your apartment or whatever. There's two kinds of smoke detectors. There's ionizing smoke detectors, which have been around quite a while, and more recently, the more expensive photoelectrics. Now, the way they work, the ionizing one works, is that they put some uh, radioactive material, usually it's uh, americium in there, or americum, I don't know how to pronounce it. I've always said americium, but anyway. Uh, it's a synthetic element, and so I forget its atomic number off the top of my head, but uh, greater than uranium, obviously. And anyhow, what that does is that essentially ionizes any smoke particles that come through its detecting chamber, and those uh, then create a current, and that very, very small current is detected by the battery, which then drives the, sir- the alarm sounder. They are really good at picking up smoking fires, and I don't mean you know I don't mean fires that have a a nicotine habit. I mean fires that smolder for a long period of time, and yeah, often that's a problem. But uh, yeah, it's one kind of fire. But uh, once a fire really gets underway, it'll start generating heat. They say where there's smoke, there's fire, but there's the funny thing is where there's heat. There's also eventually fire as well. And you will be able to see the heat with a photoelectric before you will ever see the smoldering. That said, both have their own advantages and disadvantages. So a smoke detector will detect uh, the smoke particles further away from the source of the fire, whereas a photoelectric needs to be more physically close to the heat source in order to detect it. 
So one, one for example, that's a long way away from the heat source, say, you know, 30 feet away in the hallway, will probably not detect, a photoelectric probably won't detect a fire starting in the kitchen, whereas a an ionizing detector would because the smoke particles will, because, you know, hot air rises, they'll carry up to the roof and they'll fan out across the top of the roof. The problem, of course, with ionizing ones is that they are also, well, there's a problem. No, well, they're cheap. And the great thing about that, I guess, is that people have been putting them in now for decades, a couple of decades now. They've been quite popular. But they go off every time someone burns the damn toast, right? And people get sick of it. You know, they'll, they'll go and they take the battery out. They take them down. They just, you know, they give up on them. So my advice is use a combination of both. I would be using the photoelectric ones in cooking areas or areas where you have uh, heat sources most likely to start a fire, like if you've got a laundry with a dryer uh, in it or you've got uh, a kitchen with a stovetop or an oven, whatever, you know, I would be having the uh, photoelectric sensors in those locations and then I would put the ionizing detectors closer to the bedrooms, which are presumably further away, depending on the size of the house and, and all that sort of stuff, how many you need is up to you. And, you know, don't take my word as as gospel. You know, check with your local fire department. Uh, there's plenty of sites out there that have got advice, best advice of where to mount these things. But uh, but please please consider getting them and using them. Because what you want to avoid is the burning toast syndrome, which is as soon as the alarm goes off, kids start wake up a little bit during the night and say, "Oh, someone's cooking toast again," and go back to sleep or just try and ignore it. Or they don't. Their their first reaction is to not get out of the house. It's oh, there goes the damn smoke detector again. So if you start getting nuisance triggers, move the damn things. Try a different time. Go switch to the uh, photoelectric instead of the ionizing in that location. You know. In any case, so that's fire and fire detectors and fire safety. I didn't talk about fire extinguishers or fire blankets, but yes. You should definitely have those as well as uh, preventative measures. Most people don't have an extinguisher and a lot of people don't have a fire blanket. Fire blankets are surprisingly cheap and they're very quick and easy to use. And honestly, if it having one of those in where, wherever you cook is invaluable. So that's that's an easy one. Fire extinguishers are a harder sell because you've got to you've got to make sure that they're pressurized, you gotta check professionally and so on regularly, otherwise you can't use them. All right, the last, the very final thing, I said that was going to be the last topic, and it is, but um, honestly, there's one more thing I wanted to say about this, and it comes down to attitude. Okay, safety, and I don't care if this sounds douchey. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Who cares? It's not all about you. It's not all about your safety. It's about the safety of other people around you, the people that you love people that you don't necessarily love or maybe you don't specifically care about them that much. Maybe they're your neighbours, your extended uh, friends or your casual acquaintances. You know, maybe maybe there's someone you walk past as you're walking down the street, they're doing something dangerous, you know. There's so much society press, societal pressure in bigger cities to just keep to yourself, keep yourself, mind your own business. You know, it's don't tell someone else how to operate their leaf blower. They're not ear, wearing hearing protection, you know. And you walk up to someone operating the leaf blower on their driveway. And, yeah, it's like, well, well, hang on a minute. You should be wearing hearing protection. Why, why aren't you doing that? 
you know, mind your own damn business, right? And I'm sure that if you say that to a dozen people, you would get at least one or two of them come back and tell you to mind your own business. But the truth is that if they're doing something that's re- that's really unsafe, that they could really hurt themselves, maybe hearing's not as big a deal in in that sense, but, you know, if they could physically injure themselves or someone else, for goodness sake, could tell them. You know, even if they don't change their way, if you tell 10 people they're doing something dumb or dangerous, unsafe, if only one of them changes what they're doing, I think it's kind of worth it. You know, don't just accept it and keep walking. And and one of the things that I came across years ago, and um, I, I am a little bit of a poet, but this is not one of mine. I can appreciate good poetry. And there's a guy called Don Merrill, and he's a poet, but uh, he works for a company called J.R. Simplot uh, Company. They're a chemical fertilizer. He's been there for 40 years or thereabouts. I think he's still there. He started working out as a laborer, worked his way up this ranks to worked way up the ranks to being a granulator operator. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure what that is. But anyway, they operate granulators. And along that way, he became involved with the safety committee, uh, specifically the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Local 2-632. He obtained an Idaho State Journeyman Electrician's License, so he's a sparky. And he obtained the Emergency Medical Technician Certificate and spent 18 years responding to emergencies and injuries within the plant he was working in. He's written a lot of poems, and I'm actually going to read this one to you now. And why I'm going to read it is because this is a poem that I heard years ago that has changed the way I see this stuff. And there's a link to it in the, sh- there's a link to it in the show notes. Um, read up on it. It's It's good. And um, brace yourself, here we go. Or if you don't like poetry, I guess fast forward. But, you know, if you've made it this far, you may as well stick with me. It's only another couple of minutes. The poem is entitled, I Could Have Saved a Life That Day. I chose to look the other way. I could have saved a life that day, but I chose to look the other way. It wasn't that I didn't care. I had the time I was, and I was there. But I didn't want to seem a fool or argue over a safety rule. I knew he'd done the job before. If I spoke up, he might get sore. The chances didn't seem that bad. I'd done the same. I knew he had. So I shook my head and walked by. He knew the risks as well as I. He took the chance. I closed an eye. And in and with that act, I let him die. I could have saved a life that day, but I chose to look the other way. Now, every time I see his wife, I know I should have saved his life. That guilt is something I must bear, but it isn't something you need to share. If you see a risk that others take that puts their health or life at stake, the question asked or thing you say could help them live another day. If you see a risk and walk away, then hope you never have to say, I could have saved a life that day, but I chose to look the other way. That's it. That's by Don Merrill. The message is if you see someone that is doing something that is dangerous, could potentially hurt themselves or others, stop them, say something, do something. Don't just keep walking. And that's it. If you want to talk more about this, you can find John on Twitter at John Chigi. The same on app.net. You should check out John's site, techdistortion.com. If you'd like to send an email, you can send it to john at techdistortion.com. 
I'm Ben Alexander, and you can reach me on Twitter at FiatLuxFM. You should follow Pragmatic Show at, Pragma- at Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other related materials. Final thank you to our sponsor, Typeform, for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you check them out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ben.